This is a News Radio 1440 podcast. Good Wednesday evening, everybody, and thank you so much for being with us here on Tactics, where speech isn't violence, tolerance isn't love, and disagreement isn't hate. Thank you for being with us here on the program. As always, I'm your host, Caleb Colquitt. Let's go ahead and jump to our coronavirus update for the day. This is the latest from the Alabama Department of Public Health. You can see there that we have 12,744 cases confirmed in the Yellowhammer State, 167,188 total tested, 517 who have lost their lives to COVID-19. And you can see that uh, down there we have about 4,000 cases in the last 14 days and about 66,000 people tested in the past 14 days. Now, we're going to get to all of those numbers. I do want to say, though, that I do want to, before we even get into that, talk about how drastic a change there has been, really, even in the past 24 hours with tests, and we're certainly going to check that out in a second. You can go ahead and see here the confirmed cases for the virus. And if you look here, they are up, but not wildly out of the average day the seven-day average, rather, of about 304. So our seven-day average is 304. We had 368 today. So, yeah, up a little. And that seven-day average is going to drop significantly tomorrow because you'll see that we have a pretty substantial outlier. In fact, it's the second-highest day that we've ever had. I want to say that was back on the 19th. Or, sorry, not the 19th. The 19th would have been yesterday. Uh, I, be I believe it was back on the uh, the 13th. But anyway, so that's really where we need to keep our focus. The seven-day average is going to go down tomorrow. And so whether or not tomorrow is a wild outlier or not is going to largely depend on how many confirmed cases are reported on tomorrow. So let's go ahead and look at the new test for the virus. If I can get it to go ahead and pull up there. There we go. All right. So if you look at the new test, you'll see there was a substantial increase, and we had had three days of very few tests. I don't know if they just all got reported back at the same time, and so the tests have been kind of gummed up in the bureaucracy and then wound up getting released today, or they just hadn't been able to test. I'm really not sure why there were so few tests happening over the previous three days, but today more or less made up for it because you'll see that this is the fourth highest day for testing in a single day the state of Alabama has done. So certainly something that is, is worth note, that over that period, we've had a, a pretty substantial increase over the past day, and hopefully that is a trend that continues. I've been saying for a while now that testing is the only area in Alabama that really does need some improvement. You'll remember when we did state-by-state -state comparisons of our neighbors to the north, south, east, and west, that in each of those cases, we the only one that we were not behind in testing was Mississippi and just barely not behind Mississippi in that. Everything else we were doing fine on. We actually have lower death rates per capita. We actually have or just did ha have at the time. I don't know. I'd have to do another comparison to know if we still have less cases than most of the others with the exception of, I want to say Tennessee is the only one that had more cases per capita. But 
Anyway, we've been doing pretty good compared to our neighbors on virtually all of those categories, with the exception of testing, and testing might be the reason that we were doing a little bit better even. I, it, it's very, very difficult to say. I gave a whole explanation of why I didn't think that was necessarily the case. I'll have to do another state-by-state -state comparison really soon. But looking at the numbers that we see now, having these new tests with 9,000 new tests, we had almost 10,000 new tests in one day, 9,600 in a single day. And that's really good news. I still think that it's more important, and I'm really bothered by the fact that not only Alabama, but other states have not been nearly as fervent or as pointed or seem to prioritize antibody testing nearly as much as they should. And that's really surprising to me for a number of reasons. First of all, this seems to be priority number one for the vast majority of the European nations. And especially when it comes to areas of medicine, America tends to lead Europe, not the other way around. It's very rare that Europe has an innovation or Europe is doing something better in the medical field than the United States. But on this one, it seems as though there's almost a hesitancy or they, they'd much rather look at confirmed cases than they would antibody test. I don't know what that hesitancy is, but there doesn't really seem to be much of a priority to start mass producing these antibody tests and getting it out there. Now, I know this is a quick turnaround and sometimes things turn slowly, but especially in America where we're supposed to have a freer economy than Europe, I find it really odd that there's not been more of a priority and, and more of a desire for a, a appetite for these antibody testing uh, results and, and having them come out pretty quickly. Maybe it's it's at least partially political. Maybe it's just not convenient to the narrative, and that's part of it. I genuinely don't know, and that's really a big question mark right now. So on the new testing, and, and this is one thing that's also really good, that increase in testing has led to a better test-to-positive ratio. So in other words, out of all the tests that we're having, the percentage of confirmed cases in Alabama have been 7.6% which is actually really good, and we've been going down on this for a while. I can remember reporting when our positive rates on testing were roughly 15 16%. And so the fact that we have more than halved that, and, and it's actually significantly below the national average, because you'll remember the national average is about 15 and our average is about 7.6. I mean, that's, that's about half. And so Alabama is doing really well on that one as well. And it would be very difficult to mask because, again, I've been saying that Alabama needs more tests as well. But the truth is, if you're looking at our positive test ratio, we don't need it nearly as bad as some people would say looking at the raw numbers. So that does shed some light and give a little bit of context on that, that Alabama is not just woefully under testing because we wouldn't have such a low test to positive ratio if that were the case. Now, let's go ahead, and it's part of the reason I also say we need more antibody testing to find out, okay, are people just not getting sick as often in Alabama, or is it that they've already contracted the virus and they're just not showing symptoms, at least to the point to where they feel like they need to go out and get tested? Those are a couple of really big question marks that antibody testing would go a long way in helping resolve. So let's go ahead and look at hospitalizations. Now, there are 37 hospitalizations as of today. 37 new wins, and you can see there that's a little bit lower than the 45 we had yesterday. Yet Yesterday was a big day. It was not the biggest day that we've had for hospitalizations, but it was definitely a big day, and it was a big increase over the lull 
that we had been enjoying relatively recently. Today, it's not as bad. It's still kind of up. It's still over, or, or sorry, above average. But it's not wildly out of the norm. And again, we're compared to yesterday, the fact that it's on a downward trend again, even if it's not much of a downward trend, is really good because the thing that we were concerned about is that that was going to be a substantial upward trend and it doesn't look as though that's going to be the case. That could change tomorrow theoretically, but right now it doesn't appear as though a drastic increase in hospitalizations is is going to happen. It's, it's good to have a tapering off here, but it's still something that we need to keep an eye on. And let's, of course, look at coronavirus deaths in the, the state of Alabama. You can look there and see, still pretty low. Still pretty low. Now, this is a lagging statistic, as I've pointed out virtually every day that we've talked about this. Maybe that spike in hospitalizations winds up with several new COVID-19 deaths in the next couple of days. But right now, it it's not showing any signs of that. In fact, our, our, death, our death and our overall death rate, in other words, our death per population are incredibly low. And so hopefully that is a trend that continues. So these are the statewide numbers. And you know that because we've been talking about these every single day. But one thing that is a issue of concern, and we absolutely have to, to cover it here, is there is talk about Montgomery, the capital city, being the new hot zone. And not just Montgomery, but the surrounding areas, your Wetumpkas, your Prattvilles, your Millbrooks, uh, Hope Hole, um, you know, all of the surrounding areas and, and basically the entirety of the river region possibly being a new hot zone. And this is not something that is wholly, completely and wholly a creation of the media either. The White House even had Montgomery on a list saying that this could potentially be another one of the hot zones. So let's look at a couple of pieces of evidence that point us to this. And this was a graph that was put out by... AL.com. So if you'll look here, you can see this was one that was published. And you'll notice that the seven-day average, and this is since May 1st, so this is just the month of May. We're, we're 20 days into it now. You'll notice that the seven-day average is climbing pretty steeply, going from about 20 new cases a day to about uh, just below 60. Well, closer to 50. But you know, floating around the 50, that's a pretty substantial increase. If you go from having 20 new cases a day to having about 50 new cases a day, and of course there's some spikes and some outliers that you'll see there on the 10th and the 15th. But overall, this is something that has been a pretty sharp increase in the river region, and so there's a reason that we need to pay attention to it. It would behoove us to take notice. And this is a quicker rate than the rest of the state because the state, your, the case numbers we've been looking at, also going up. We've been talking about that as well, that ever since people started moving around really about two weeks ago, because the official end of the shutdown doesn't really make a hill of beans difference. Whether or not people were actually going out and get, getting around and potentially spreading the virus, that's what actually makes a difference. And so that really happened at least a week, if not two weeks, before Governor Ivey announced that the shutdown was going to end or, or officially ended the shutdown last week. So that really is a better rubric of that. But overall, the state's confirmed cases have been going up. We've been talking about this, 
every single day. But Montgomery area has been going up at a larger rate. It's been going up faster than before. One thing that's important to note about that, before people start panicking or thinking that, that something crazy is going to happen, one thing that is very, very important to keep in mind is that Montgomery had less cases for a very long time. In fact, it was baffling. You may remember a couple months ago we were talking about this, that Jefferson County, that Madison County, that Baldwin County, all of the other major cities in the state of Alabama were seeing much bigger numbers and a far larger portion of their population getting this virus than people in Montgomery. Even the smaller cities like Tuscaloosa and Auburn, the Auburn-Opelika area combined, were seeing a smaller percentage of their population get it than Montgomery. Which was kind of odd, especially when you consider that the first confirmed case in the state of Alabama was somebody from Montgomery. So it was very strange, and I don't know to this day that we ever have a good answer of why that took place, but putting that context in makes a world of difference for Montgomery. Because if you understand that Montgomery just kind of didn't really hit a, hit a big spike, and because we never really got a lot of our people infected with it, that that was eventually going to come, and it just happens to be hitting apparently now, that makes a big difference. Because we saw the same thing with Baldwin. Originally, Baldwin County wasn't getting hit all that hard. But the county that was getting hitting really hard, getting hit really hard was Jefferson. And then when they did start seeing people in mass get it in Baldwin County, those numbers started ratcheting up and now Baldwin has had more cases than Jefferson County, despite having a smaller population. However, if you're looking at Montgomery, we never really caught up with the other cities or, or got really on par with them as far as a portion of our population, the, pop, uh, the population of our county and the surrounding areas getting it. And because of that, we're getting those numbers now. And that's actually a really good thing because there wasn't a ton of separation between when Huntsville, Birmingham, and Mobile all got hit with this stuff. There was some difference. I mean, like I said, Baldwin took a little bit longer than Jefferson County to really start contracting this thing on a really big basis. And because of that, there is going to be more medical facilities. There is going to be more uh, ability to have other cities come in and help. The fact that Jefferson County, the, the worst is behind them is going to be very helpful to Montgomery if we're hitting the worst part of the virus, at least for us, in this area right around now. That's actually a really positive thing that we were delayed in getting it because if there is any spillover in our hospitals, if there is anything else from the outside that we need, then Birmingham can actually lend a hand. They may not have been able to at the very beginning of this thing where Jefferson County's numbers were really, really high. And so St Mayor Stephen Reed actually commented on this. He said, and this is a direct quote from Mayor Reed, I'm concerned about the current status of the COVID-19 pandemic. We are seeing an increase in the number of people who test positive. Occupancy and in our intensive care units has reached a critical point and Montgomery Hospital officials are now referring some cases to Birmingham. So there's a couple things here. First of all, they were always referring at least some cases to Birmingham because they can offer more specialized care. 
So just saying sort of broadly that they're referring some cases to Birmingham, that really doesn't tell us much because Montgomery doctors have been referring people to Birmingham because they have more specialized care. They, if they're in bad shape, they have a better chance of, of doing better there. That's something that's been going on since long before we even knew what the coronavirus was. So that's really not surprising, and it's somewhat misleading. I'm not saying that it's not critical. I'm not saying that it's not a big deal. All I'm saying is that's a bad indication of that if that's the only thing that you're going off of. And another thing I would like to note, isn't it amazing how Mayor Reed's curfew, which, by the way, is technically still in effect. I mean, the state curfew is gone. But Mayor Reed's curfew, which started long before KIV announced the shutdown and has lasted afterward, after the shutdown has, has concluded, that our curfew's still in place and somehow magically it didn't stop us from getting it. Look, it, it never was going to have an effect. If anything, it made it worse. And that's true of us here in Montgomery. That's true of people in, in, in other jurisdictions and other municipalities. Uh, I, I've done whole segments on that. I'm not going to rehash it again. But I do think it's hilarious that Mayor Reed has essentially had the same policy in place the entire time, and somehow we're, we're still having it. It's, it's almost like those policies didn't make a difference. But anyway, referring cases to Birmingham or Opelika really isn't a big deal. They're not that far away. It's not like It's not like when you have a trauma situation where, because this thing tends to be a slower burn, that if we find somebody does need critical care or they do need to be put in an ICU, moving them around is going to be a lot easier with this as opposed to something like a gunshot wound. And so uh, really moving people and outsourcing that to Birmingham and Opelika aren't a big deal, especially when you consider that UAB's occupancy has actually been down in recent weeks, that they've actually had less patients than they normally do. And so there's actually an abundance of things like ICU beds, like ventilators and specialized care that Birmingham or even Opelika, if we had to start sending people there, could provide to the citizens of Montgomery if there is an overflow. There's really been no evidence that there is an overflow yet, but if that takes place, sending people to Birmingham or Opelika, that's not a very long trip. It takes about an hour. And so that's something that really... I think he's overblowing the severity of this by trying to, to say that we're running out of ICU beds. Now, another thing that I would bring up, because Mayor Reed's not the worst example of it, even though some of his policies, like the curfew, were boneheaded. The fear-mongering is incredibly transparent from AL.com. I want to go ahead and read an article from AL.com today, and at least a couple segments of it. And this is the Beyond the Numbers Thrasher, this is a doctor that they interviewed. Thrasher also has concerns about the faces he's seeing. About 40% of his patients have been between the ages of 25 and 40. And although older people are much more likely to die from the virus, he said he has lost younger patients, including a couple of hairstylists. Here's the thing. 40% of people coming through being in that age group, that's fantastic. Because those people, even though they may need hospitalization are significantly less likely to die. I was actually looking, and I hate the fact that we don't have national numbers on a breakdown of COVID deaths, but looking at one of the records from, I believe it was Pennsylvania, which Pennsylvania, that's a New England state. They've been hit harder than most. 
They have a pretty big population density. They have, of course, the city of Philadelphia, which means that they have a major metropolitan area there in Pennsylvania. So they have all the factors that make them far more susceptible to this thing being far worse for them than Montgomery does. And do you know what their ratio of ages are? They have, and I'm talking just raw numbers. This is not adjusting for population. So just in raw numbers, more people over the age of 85 had died from this thing than have people that are under the age of 80. And the reason that's so significant that that is true, even if you don't adjust for population, how many people do you know over 80 years old? How many people do you know under 80 years old? That's a world of difference. You probably, if you're lucky, or you, you go to church, a, a place that tends to have you know older people congregate, you probably know maybe half a dozen to a dozen 80-year-olds or more, or if you're in that age group, you may know a few more. But there's no question that there's a lot more people under 80 than there are over 85. And the fact that the over 85 deaths are larger than the under 80 deaths it shows that this thing is actually far more age-sensitive, that your age is a far larger factor than we even originally believed. And we already originally believed that it was the most significant factor. And so the fact that 40% of the people coming in, that seems to be something that AL.com is trying to use to alarm you, that's actually a really, really good thing. In fact, it would be better if it were 80 or 90% because it means the chances of those people dying from the disease are virtually non-existent. Not non-existent, but virtually non-existent. In fact, your mortality rate for people under the age of 18 is virtually zero. I mean, it's so close to zero that it's not even statistically significant. In that same study, I don't remember if it was actually Pennsylvania. It was another one that was looking at death rates over age. The entire state, I want to say it was Pennsylvania. The entire state of Pennsylvania has had exactly one person under the age of 18 die. At least from this virus. So, I mean, age is such a significant factor here that that's actually a really, really positive thing that a lot of them are coming through. And I really think that it's important that they, they point out at the end there, uh, a couple of them that have died under the, the age of, of 40, they're hairstylist. Why point out hairstylist? A couple of people have died and their hairstylist. Okay. Well, first of all, were they hairstylists that were even open? Were they hairstylists that have even been going to the salon and actually interacting with people? Because it's clear what's going on here is they have a political agenda. They don't like the fact that the, that the shutdown was ended. They don't like the fact that this isn't going their way. They have a political agenda to try to keep the, sh the state shut down. And because this doesn't fit with their narrative, they're trying to say, ah, see, hairstylists, they're the ones that are dying. Okay, well, they, were they hairstylists that had already returned to work? Because if not, they, that kind of cuts against your narrative. And another thing, too, why bring up specifically hairstylists? Why not talk about people? I mean, I'm not saying that they should. I'm saying it seems odd that that seems to be the one profession that they try to zero in on. It's because they're trying to make you believe that ending the shutdown was a bad idea. They're specifically trying to move the reader in that direction. Because what about fast food workers? Most of them never stopped going to work. They're working the drive throughs They may not be having people come into their dining rooms, but they are still having interactions with people at the drive through What about them? Have any drive through workers under that age group died? Because considering the age group and considering the city that we're living in where everything is done in a car, 
You know, it's not like New York where you walk around everywhere. I would tend to guess probably far more drive through workers have actually perished compared to hairstylists. The reason they don't bring that up is because that doesn't fit the narrative. That can't move the needle for them. The only reason they would bring up specifically hairstylists is because they're trying to make you believe that ending the shutdown was a bad idea. AL.com continues on. Last week, a couple of pastors reached out to Thrasher, again, the doctor they were interviewing, uh, reached out to Thrasher for advice on whether to hold church services. He advised against it, since religious services have proved to be hotspots for coronavirus transmission. Now, here's the thing. I don't doubt that, but I also want to see proof. In fact, you may remember when all of this started out, when we were talking about whether or not church services, and of course, especially in my audience, that's something that is of the utmost importance. A lot of people are asking, uh, should we continue to have church services? Now, I don't think the government should have got involved, but I thought that people in, in my own congregation did, and, and th I thought that that was the correct thing to do, in church services at least for a while until we knew that it was safe. I predicted that that probably was going to be a hot zone for this thing to spread because you have a lot of young people who are more likely to be asymptomatic around a lot of older people who are far more susceptible both to catching it and it showing symptoms and to having a, you know, having serious problems, having to be hospitalized and then dying from it. I said that from the very start. So I believe that this is true. I have no reason to doubt that this is true. But I'd also like to see some proof. I'd also like to see them cite their source. Because they're saying that they have proved to be hotspots for coronavirus transmission. Maybe they have. I don't know. Maybe AL.com did their work and just isn't showing it here. But I'd really like to see the source. And that, that's for my own understanding as well. I'm just bothered by the fact that, again, this seems to be something specifically geared towards saying, no, ending the shutdown was a bad idea because they're specifically targeting the things that Kay Ivey letting up on the shutdown actually undid. And it's, it's a clearly politically driven narrative. It's clearly, I mean, the fear-mongering from AL.com is just staggering at this point. Now, this last part, I think, is actually correct, and it's when they, instead of just telling you what Dr. Thrasher said, give you an actual quote from Dr. Thrasher, which is far more compelling and also a better gauge of what's actually being said here. Dr. Thrasher said, quote, I'm not for shutting down the city, but I want people to be careful. Wear a mask in public. Wash your hands. Don't go into groups unless you have to. I don't have a problem with that. It's perfectly reasonable. I don't think any of the stuff that Dr. Thrasher just said is a problem. And by the way, that's what a medical professional should be saying. They're not thinking about it from the aspect of the economy. Their job is to tell you about your health. It's the same thing that I have gotten in trouble with with other conservatives, and I don't care, I'm going to say what I think, when I've said that I don't think that Dr. Fauci is, is some kind of political operative or necessarily a bad guy. I'm not Fauci's biggest fan because of some of his work in other areas. But as far as trying to, to put together theories that, that Fauci is undermining Trump somehow or that this is all... Look, Dr. Fauci's job is to give you health advice. And in the same way that a lawyer's job is to give you sound legal advice, Dr. Fauci is always going to err on the side of caution and say, well, if you want to stay healthy, the solution is to stay shut down. In the same way that a lawyer would tell you, if you don't want to get in legal trouble, you don't need to do this. 
I say this as somebody that's a communicator that has dealt with this in the past. Because if there's ever something that you're edgy or you're on the fence about and you're not sure if it can get you in legal trouble or not, the lawyer is always going to say don't do it. If there's ever any doubt, if there's ever any, even a trace of an idea that it might land you in legal hot water, the lawyer is without fail every single time going to do his job and say, you know what, leave it alone. We, we don't really want to risk it. That's his job. He's an advisor. But sometimes you go ahead and do it anyway because you think the reward will outweigh the risk. That's what happens with the virus. A doctor would tell you the way to ensure to keep you from getting the common cold would be to do all of these things. That doesn't mean that we're going to do them indefinitely. And I don't think that the average person is willing to, at any point in cold season, walk around for you know half the year wearing a mask trying to make sure he doesn't spread the cold to other people. That's not a reasonable thing to do, but that might be what a doctor would advise because it would be the healthier decision. But it's up to you to finally make those calls. And so I don't have a problem with what Dr. Thrasher is saying there. I don't have a problem with it at all. Saying, I'm not for shutting down the city. Again, a reasonable response to this. But we should be smart about this. Continue to uh, wash your hands, be cognizant of, of that, and try to not to spread the thing. I got no issue with that. In, in fact, I agree with it wholeheartedly. Now, I will say that the only thing is there is a bit of a straw man fallacy there. There is a bit of a mischaracterization because I don't know the context in which he said that. I don't know what question he was responding to by the interviewer. It is possible that what Dr. Thrasher meant by that, and again, this is conjecture here. I'm not trying to put words in Dr. Thrasher's mouth, is that he's suggesting that there are people that are saying that we shouldn't do that because every serious conservative that I know, every serious uh, person in the Republican Party is saying, let's open it up, but not just go back to business as usual. Basically saying exactly what Dr. Thrasher said here. People should continue to be careful. People should continue to take precautions. You still shouldn't be in large groups at one time. All of these things are basically the platform that conservatives have been talking about. Let's not shut it down, but let's also be smart about this. Let's not just do dumb things or take unnecessary risk. I, I mean, again, it's, there's a bit of a straw man fallacy in there. If that was if that was actually what he was meaning, I don't know of anybody that would be opposed to that. At least anybody prominent or anybody that's taken seriously in political circles. I will say though, I'm still a little bit baffled as to how this whole thing became partisan anyway. I'm still just sort of flabbergasted. I'm not shocked because just about everything becomes partisan now, even common sense things that uh, it never made sense to be partisan on. But, you know, here we are. I, I don't really get it. I don't understand why, but that's where we are right now. Now, I, I did want to have a larger discussion and it's going to be brief because I don't know exactly, and, and this is all just speculation at this point. I really am a bit confused, or maybe not confused is the right word. I've just been wondering over the past several days. I've been wondering how church is going to react to this long term because the way that we do church has been radically restructured during the shutdown. And 
I think that once things start returning to normal, churches are going to start returning to normal services, and some already have. But does that radical restructuring change anything? What does it do? Because that's the thing that I'm a little iffy on right now. I don't really know how it restructures, and I don't think any of us will know one until after it actually happens. But I think the different people are going to react in different ways. And I'm not even talking about congregations. I'm talking about individuals I think will react in different ways. I think there's going to be some people that are completely unaffected. There are going to be some people that they went to church beforehand, they had their routine that they were comfortable with, and when it resumes, when everything goes back to normal, they're going to go back to exactly the same routine that they had before. I don't think that's necessarily a good thing or a bad thing. I'm just saying that that's one way that they're going to react. Another one, there are going to be people that ask, why do we ever have to go back to church? We've been doing it here in our homes and basically having church zoomed, or church uh, either zoomed in or broadcast into us like watching Hulu or something like that. And so why do we ever have to go back? If we're getting the message here and we can do church here, then why do we ever have to darken the door of another church building again? In fact, we have a lot more variety now with the internet. We can just find a church broadcast that we really like, that has good production value, that has a, a really good dynamic preacher, and we can watch that church and do church here from here on out. I don't think that that's a good idea. Because there is more to being a church than going to church. Because what you're talking about there is worship, which I believe that you can do in your own house. And I believe that, that I have been doing for the past several weeks in my own house, watching the broadcast of, of Dalreda online, which I'm about to do in a second because it's Wednesday night and it's time for Bible study. But the thing we have to keep in mind is that fellowship is bigger than that. Fellowship is something that is specifically commanded in the Scripture. And every biblical example shows that God's people do have to congregate together, and that is something that is greatly encouraged. And that each Christian, or at least people that were considered Christians, belong to a specific congregation. You see, you wouldn't just say, when it comes to family, for example, you wouldn't just say that you are a member of the family by watching a family interact with each other on TV. I mean, if that were the case, then there are millions of Kardashians out there, as scary as that, that thought that is. You're not just a part of the family watching stuff play out on a screen in front of you. If you want to actually be a part of a congregation to build a relationship with people, which is an integral part of being part of the body of Christ, then corporate worship is something that is commanded. And I don't have a problem with, and I have often said that I, I thought it was the right thing to do for churches to put off having actual physical congregations, physical meeting places for at least a few weeks and just broadcast things out. But that is not a sustainable long-term solution. Eventually, people are going to have to come back. There are also people, I think, that react to this, saying, maybe we should change our service times. And frankly, I think this would be a good thing. I really wish that my own congregation would reevaluate some of its service times. To be honest, 
ideally, I would like for church to start after lunch. I think that, that would be easier on the, the people. I think it would be easier. Well, actually, if I had my way and I could pick anything, I would have church eat church every single Sunday. But I know that people are not going to be on board with that, and I understand that. And so I, I realize it would be a hassle to do it every single week. But a, a workable solution, a realistic or at least semi-realistic solution in, in my mind would be church starts sometime after about one o'clock, something like that. And then we stay there for three, four hours and, and maybe the, the rest of the day in some form or another, not necessarily doing Bible studies or worship all day, but for the remainder of the night being with brethren, uh, maybe going over to somebody's house afterward and, and having a meeting there. That's the form I would really love to see it take. Because the two-service Sunday that we've had for a long time in this country and the, the average church here in the South has had for a very long time, that was an outcropping of World War II. The fact that the country moved to shift work as opposed to doing things that they, they had done in the past where they met one time on Sunday, I'm not for less church at all. I, I want to have at least, at, I think the bare minimum is doing three hours on Sunday. But... When it comes to church, I, I do think that the, the two-service thing doesn't really make sense, at least not the way that it did in the, the early days and the reason that it was created. That, that time has long passed. I think that it would be better for us to reevaluate some of those things. And I'm hoping that the fact that we've broken this up now with the virus leads to that at least somewhat. And I think that that would be a positive thing in some congregations, it might actually be a negative thing in some congregations. It depends on the situation that you're in. You're in, But breaking up that routine and showing that we don't necessarily have to do it exactly this way every single time, that might get people to thinking, and I hope that it does. Um, the next one, there's basically two different starts and, and two, or sorry, the same start, but two different conclusions. There are some people that are going to think, well, church is not a building, therefore, why do I need it? If church isn't a building, if you can be a member of the church, quote-unquote, if you can be a, a follower of Christ and never have to actually go to church, again, this kind of stems off from what we started with, then why do I need church in the first place? If, if church is not a lifestyle, if church is not a, or if church is supposed to be an alteration of your life and a discipleship, which, by the way, it is, then why do I have to include other people in that? In other words, they might start thinking that corporate worship, worshiping with a group of Christians together, isn't necessarily something that we have to do, which biblically is incorrect. Every example that we're given in the Old Testament is groups of Christians coming together to worship and desiring to do so. What that ultimately comes down to is, I think that each person could worship with just their family and be okay in accordance to God. Where I question that is your desire. Where I start to question that is I go, do you really not want to meet with other Christians and have fellowship with them? Because that, I think, is a problem. If you wanted to get together and worship alone with your family in your, in your house and not intermingle with other Christians, I don't think there's anything necessarily incorrect spiritually with that. But I also think that there is something wrong with you internally. That there is something wrong with the way that you view Christianity if that is not something that you desire. And so 
I'm really, I don't think that that's the right attitude to have either. And then the other one could be, well, church is not a building, therefore I need to start living it. I hope that that is one of the takeaways from this. That since church is not merely a building, and church is something that I should be living and doing every single day, then once all this lets up, I need to be meeting with people, evangelizing, uh, hanging out around other Christians, my fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. I'm hoping that the, the uprooting of the idea that the building is super important when it comes to church leads to that reaction as opposed to the other one. And really what I hope is that there is a desire in everybody saying, I can't wait to get back to church. I would like to say to you that that has always been my attitude, and I think that's been my predominant attitude. But I have also thought, man, it is super nice to not have to wake up early in the morning and get all dressed up and go to church. Now, ultimately, I'm willing to do those things and was willing to do those things and still am before all of this hit because being with my brothers and sisters was something that I really desired, and so I was willing to do the inconvenient things in order to get that which I actually wanted. So yeah, I didn't like waking up, I didn't like going when service was, but I did like basically everything once I got there. And so I am hoping that that really goes back to the conversation we were having about people maybe changing worship times or altering that in some way or reevaluating it, if nothing else, even if it winds up not changing. But I really hope that that is the attitude that most people have. I'm not sure if that's going to be the reaction. When we all come back to church, are we going to see an increase in attendance or a decrease? What does that look like? I'm really curious to see how all of this shakes out because the building is not important, but the church is, and the church is the people. And if we jettison that, if we no longer want association with that, we're not really part of the body of Christ. And so that, that really is something that I think people need to take to heart. All right, we're going to go ahead. It's, it's about 7 o'clock, so we're going to go ahead and wrap it up. That'll be our show for the evening. Stay the course, friends. Tactics with Caleb Colquitt. Only on News Radio 1440 and NewsRadio1440.com.